0: Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday, and Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. As well as on June 3rd, I'm launching a new podcast called Coast to Coast, which looks at the building of the Transcontinental Railway. You can find all of these on all podcast platforms. If you like, you can email me at craig at You can find me on Twitter, my handle is Craig Baird C-R-A-I-G, B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at berdo 37 Today I'm looking at the history of Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. So, let's begin. The Indigenous Originally named Kista Penaknik by the Cree, which translates to Great Meeting Place, the area that would be Prince Albert was occupied for centuries by the Cree, as well as the Blackfoot whose territory's upper reaches reached the area. The various groups that called Prince Albert home over the centuries were the Woodland Cree, the Plains Cree, the Swampy Cree, the Dene, the Dakota, and eventually the Métis Nation. Today, Prince Albert sits on Treaty 6 land and has one of the highest Indigenous population ratios in any Canadian city. The Founding of the Community The first European to arrive in the area is believed to be Henry Kelsey, who arrived along the North Saskatchewan River in 1692. While there, he attempted to work with the Indigenous, whom he called Nawatami and convinced them to trade with the York factory farther inland near Hudson Bay. The first trading post to be built in the area was constructed by Peter Pond in 1776. In 1862, James Isbister, with the Hudson's Bay Company, settled on the site of the current city, and would farm there until 1866. He was soon joined by others in what was called Isbister Settlement. Around the same time, Reverend James Nisbet, a minister with the Canadian Presbyterian Church, arrived and established a mission for the Cree people. He would name the mission after Prince Albert, the consort to Queen Victoria, who had died five years previous. In 1885, the village became the town of Prince Albert. One of the biggest events in the history of the community, at least early on, was the arrival of the railroad, and even though Prince Albert had existed since the 1860s, the Northwest Resistance pushed the government to build access to the community. On September 4th, 1890, the first train came through from Regina, and on October 22nd, Lieutenant Governor Joseph Royal drove in the last spike to officially commemorate the arrival of the train and a new station in the community. By 1891, the community had over a 1,000 people, including a northwest-mounted police garrison that had 56 men in the detachment. This was because the Northwest resistance had only happened a few years previous, and I'm going to get into that soon. Prince Albert quickly became one of the most important communities in the territories. In the same year the mission was established, the Freemasons set up the first lodge in what would be Saskatchewan. When the District of Saskatchewan was formed in the Northwest Territories, Prince Albert became the capital and would remain so until 1905 when Regina became the new capital of the province. One year before Saskatchewan became a province, Prince Albert was incorporated as a city. After Regina was chosen as the capital, Prince Albert and Saskatoon became candidates for the University of Saskatchewan and the Saskatchewan Federal Penitentiary. The decision came down from the provincial government and Saskatoon received the university, while Prince Albert received the jail in 1911. Today, Prince Albert is the third largest city in Saskatchewan. The Historical Museum At this museum, you can experience the history of Prince Albert from its earliest days to today. The museum is located in the third fire hall built in the city in 1912, which was used by the Prince Albert Fire Department until 1975. On June 15, 1977, the museum was open to the public, and today the museum has a number of exhibits that visitors can enjoy. On the main level is the Military, Indigenous, Fire Department, and Civic History. On the second level, you can learn about the settler, sports, and religious history of the community. And on the lower level, you will find the business and industrial history of the community. As well, you will also find a seasonal tea room in the building with wonderful drinks and treats to enjoy. The building itself is also a municipal heritage property and has been since
1: 1981.
0: John Diefenbaker Born on September 18, 1895 in Ontario, John Diefenbaker would move with his family to the Northwest Territories in what would one day be Saskatchewan in 1903. Living near Borden, the family then moved to Saskatoon in 1910, and Diefenbaker developed such an interest in politics as a young man that when he was eight, his mother told him he would be Prime Minister one day. In 1924, he moved to Prince Albert and would run in the federal election as a Conservative, finishing third. In 1929, he ran the provincial election for Saskatchewan but was defeated, but Diefenbaker would continue to run his law practice in the city, and he ran for mayor of the city in 1933, losing by only 48 votes. Diefenbaker would mostly focus on his law career and family throughout the 1930s, but in 1940, he would run in the federal election and would finally win a seat in the House of Commons. Through the next several years, the Liberal Party would try and dislodge Diefenbaker from his riding in Prince Albert, and while serving in the House of Commons, he would still practice law, but he would lose his wife Edna in 1951 to leukemia. He married to Olive Palmer in 1953, and in 1956, George Drew would resign as the leader of the party, and Diefenbaker would finally be elected the leader of the Progressive Conservatives, becoming the leader of the official opposition. In 1957, he would lead his party to 112 seats to the Liberal 105, and now found himself as the Prime Minister of Canada.
2: Well, whatever the outcome tomorrow, the surprise record vote on Monday makes Mr. Diefenbaker the man of the moment. For this reason, the small town of Prince Albert, the home constituency of the PC leader, held the attention of press and public during the early part of the week. Mr. Diefenbaker won the seat from the Liberals in 1953. On Tuesday, Prince Albert was in a victory mood. Here to report on the scene is Don McDonald. I'm standing in front of the Stucco and Wood home, 50 years old, in which Prince Albert's favorite son and hero has lived for the past 10 years. Throughout the past week, This home has been the focal point of Mr. Diefenbaker's many activities. So it's fortunate that he moved to this larger house after living for many years in a small bungalow just a few blocks away. The whole city has been buzzing with excitement of the election results. Normally, it's a quiet, friendly place where the northern end of the rail lines terminate. It's a transportation center for the vast storehouse of minerals and timber further north. One thing that's impressed me is the spirit of keen competition in the downtown business section. Mr. Diefenbaker himself has had a thriving law practice here since 1924. But for the past eight months, he's had little time to devote to his practice. He's dashed into his new law offices when he can to discuss matters with his two law partners. On Prince Albert's Central Avenue, Mr. Diefenbaker can hardly move an inch without meeting old friends and well-wishers. Old folk and young folk alike come in for a few kind words from this 61-year-old conservative leader. One of Mr. Diefenbaker's most frustrating experiences this week was trying to get his hair cut. He finally managed to get into a barber's chair, and his old friend, Dave Fairweather, went to work on him. When he's in town, Mr. D., always picks up his newspapers at the Candy Kitchen, a favorite haunt of his. At his home, the telephone has been ringing for 24 hours a day. Long-distance phone calls have been coming in from all over Canada, and Mrs. Diefenbaker has answered many of them. Thousands of telegrams have been received, and there's a constant stream of messengers coming up to the house to deliver them. There's been hardly any time for the Diefenbakers have a moment to themselves, but they've obviously enjoyed the hectic activities. Mr. Diefenbaker loves to fish, and he did get away for a few hours one day to try his luck at Lac La Ronge, a beautiful lake north of Prince Albert. I think the fishing was better for him during last Monday's election, but his party came home with seven fish, two of which he caught himself. Before proceeding to Ottawa, his last few hours in Prince Albert saw Mr. Diefenbaker spending as much time as possible with the townspeople who'd voted for him. Mr. Diefenbaker will have to spend most of his time now in Ottawa, but it's certain he'll come back when he can to Prince Albert, a place he dearly loves. This is Don MacDonald in Prince Albert. Now back to Gordon Burwash.
0: Diefenbaker would get to work putting together his cabinet, appointing Ellen Fairclough as the Secretary of State for Canada, making her the first woman to be appointed to a cabinet post, and Michael Starr was chosen as the Minister of Labour, making him the first Ukrainian Canadian to serve in cabinet. In 1958, Diefenbaker would call an election, and he would lead his party to a massive majority, winning 208 seats to the Liberals' 48 which is still the largest majority based on the percentage of seats in Canadian parliamentary history. As Prime Minister, Diefenbaker would also appoint the first Indigenous person to the Senate of Canada, and he would grant the right to vote to Indigenous and Inuit people. He held a strong stance against apartheid, but he is also remembered for the 1959 cancellation of the Avro Arrow project. His government would also pass the Canadian Bill of Rights while he was Prime Minister. Unfortunately for Diefenbaker, the conservatives would begin to fracture, and in 1963 he would lose the federal election to Lester B. Pearson and the Liberals. In 1967, a leadership convention was held, and he was forced out as leader of the party. Nonetheless, he would continue to serve in the House of Commons until August 16, 1979, the day he died. In all, he had served from 1940 to 1979 in one of the longest uninterrupted periods in Canadian political history. If you want to learn more about John Diefenbaker's life, I encourage you to go on and check out my episode on John Diefenbaker on From John to Justin. The Evolution of Education Museum Another museum located in Prince Albert is the Evolution of Education Museum, which is maintained by the Prince Albert Historical Society. The museum's building was once the Claytonville School which operated from 1920 to 1963. Today it shows how schooling has changed in the community from a one-room school to several schools within the city. This type of one-room school once dotted the landscape of the Canadian prairies before schooling became more centralized and the one-room school faded away. The school district this school once sat on was named for Clayton Smith who was the postmaster for the area that the school was located in roughly 20 kilometres north of Prince Albert. Today, the museum holds artifacts from the early school days of Saskatchewan, as well as desks and a library. Overall, the school is decorated how it would have looked decades ago. The Prime Ministers One very interesting aspect of Prince Albert is that it has had not one, not two, but three Prime Ministers of Canada represent it something no other community in Canada can claim. The first Prime Minister to represent the community was Sir Wilfrid Laurier. In 1896, he was the leader of the Liberal Party, and he stood in two ridings, as was allowed at the time. He stood in the Prince Albert area and in Quebec East, winning both ridings, and he would choose to represent Quebec East. The second Prime Minister to represent the community was William Lyon Mackenzie King. In 1926, Charles MacDonald had won the Prince Albert seat, but he was persuaded to step aside so that King could run in the riding and re-enter the House of Commons after losing his own seat. King would win the by-election, and that same year he would run again in the riding during the federal election, and he would run against John Diefenbaker, the only time that two future Prime Ministers faced each other as candidates in the same riding in Canadian history. King won easily, taking 64% of the vote, and King would go on to represent the riding until 1945. The third Prime Minister to represent the community was, of course, John Diefenbaker, and unlike the previous two, he actually lived in Prince Albert. He would represent the riding from 1953 until 1979. And during that time, he served as Prime Minister from 1957 to 1963. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of Explornet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, Explornet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call
1: 1-866-285-2253.
0: The Prince Albert Volunteers of 1885 The role of Prince Albert during the Northwest Rebellion was no small matter. Some of the most important battles were fought near Prince Albert, including the Battle of Batoche, one hour south, that ended the resistance for good. The rebellion was also sparked somewhat when the Government of Canada sold a large tract of land to the Prince Albert Colonization Company, causing the Métis to fear that they would lose their land. At the time of the resistance, Prince Albert was also the largest community in the area, with 800 people. One of the most important forces raised during the resistance was the Prince Albert Volunteers, who would face off with the Métis in Duck Lake. The Volunteers were organized by Gentleman Joe McKay, who was with the Northwest Mounted Police, and was sent to Prince Albert to enlist 20 men as Volunteers. On March 21st, 1885, 22 men were sworn in by Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Sproat, and the force was put under the command of Captain Moore. The force would meet Gabriel Dumont and the Métis at Duck Lake on March 26, 1885. In the battle of the 41 volunteers who were sent, nine would be killed. The bodies were left in the field until Louis Rial agreed to allow the citizens of Prince Albert to retrieve them and bury them. Of all the regiments and volunteer units in the Northwest Resistance, none suffered as heavy casualties as the percentage of the force as the Prince Albert volunteers and all of those who served in the Volunteers were given 320 acres of land and $80 for their service. Boris Karloff Prince Albert has had its share of unique residents, as most towns can relate to, but few towns can boast, for a time, having Frankenstein's monster living in its confines. While he was born William Pratt, it was in Canada where Boris Karloff had moved for employment at the age of 18 and was where he officially changed his name. During his time in Canada, Karloff toured with stage shows throughout the country. Going back to how he came to Prince Albert, Karloff had recently been married in Vancouver and he happened to see an advertisement in the paper for performers with the Jean Russell Players. He applied under the name of Boris Karloff because he liked how it sounded and two months later he joined the company for £6 per week, starting his acting career in Kamloops. In mid-April of 1912, the troupe arrived in Saskatoon, staying until mid-May. With no work, Karloff took work with the Dominion Express Company, a haulage company owned by the Canadian Pacific. In Regina, he was sent to get crates of goods from the railway station, and as he crossed the track, someone threw a theatrical journal from the train window. Karloff picked it up and saw that the Harry St. Clair Players, a company in Prince Albert, needed a leading man. Karloff sent off an application letter and a few days later received a reply asking him to join them in Prince Albert. For the next year, he would tour with the group, improving his acting ability and saving up money. He left the group in 1914 to try to make it big in Chicago, but no one wanted him. After he was rejected by the British Army to serve in the war because of his heart murmur, he decided to, quote, go back where I was appreciated, end quote. And once again, he would perform with the St. Clairs in Prince Albert for another year before leaving in 1916. He eventually made it to Los Angeles in 1919 and gained employment in silent films. In 1931, he played Frankenstein's monster and became one of the most famous actors in the world. The Royal Visits Prince Albert's importance in Saskatchewan is shown in the fact that it has received a total of four royal visits. And while the Queen and Prince Philip never came to the community, several others have. The first was Princess Margaret in July of 1958. Her arrival in the community came with a bit of a commotion when two tires on the RCAF aircraft she was in blew out as the plane was taxied to the airport. Thankfully, it was a minor incident and the Princess was unaware. She was greeted upon her arrival in the city by Lieutenant Governor Frank Bastedo and Prime Minister John Diefenbaker. The princess arrived again in the community 22 years later when she stopped over in 1980 during a tour of seven communities in Saskatchewan as part of the 75th anniversary of the province. While in the community, she met several veterans of the Canadian Legion and attended a luncheon in her honour. In July of 1989, Prince Andrew and Princess Sarah arrived in Prince Albert for the third royal visit in the community's history. A very windy day did not dampen spirits as a crowd of 1,000 people came out to welcome the royal couple to the community. The couple would open the town summer fair and met with several residents shaking hands and speaking with them. The most recent visit by a member of the royal family came in 2003 when Prince Edward came to the community on June 21, 2003. A huge crowd came out to see the prince arrive, waving small flags and cheering. The Earl of Wessex spent some time in the community, speaking with residents and stating to children who gathered, quote, You managed to escape school today, have you? End quote. The prince also attended the Prince Albert Urban Treaty Days, where hand drummers put on a performance for the royal. The Octagonal Building. One of the more unique historical buildings in Prince Albert is the Octagonal Building, which is an eight-sided two-story structure that was built in 1905. Built for the purpose of housing agricultural displays during the annual exhibition, the structure's design was made to enhance the architecture of the overall city. It features a widow walk and whitewashed walls that have made it a landmark within the community. Construction of the building was conducted by the ladies section of the Lorne Agricultural Society, with the purpose of displaying their dairy produce, baking, horticultural goods, and needlework. It also provided a place for the women's group to host and organize meetings. Today, it is the only surviving building of its type still remaining within Saskatchewan. The Rotary Museum of Police and Corrections Another great museum within Prince Albert is the Rotary Museum of Police and Corrections. This museum covers the history of law enforcement not only in Prince Albert, but Saskatchewan as well. The museum itself is located in the original guardroom of the RCMP depot in Prince Albert. The museum has artifacts from the history of the Northwest Mounted Police, RCMP, and Prince Albert Police, as well as the Provincial Correction Facilities. On display are uniforms, a Tommy gun, weapons made by inmates including shanks, a zip gun, two sawed-off shotguns and other items, and there's also an alcohol still made from a fire extinguisher. Also on display are what the guards would use for discipline in the penitentiary, including a rack, whip, and a paddling table. The St. Louis Light One very interesting aspect of Prince Albert is the St. Louis Light, also known as the St. Louis Ghost Train. This is a supposed paranormal phenomenon that occurs near Prince Albert, and has been described as being similar to the headlight of an old-fashioned train. The phenomenon has been covered across North America, including on Unsolved Mysteries, and even though the tracks are now gone, the phenomenon still exists and draws many people out each year to see it. There are many tales related to the ghost light and its origin. One says that it's a ghost train, while another says that a drunk brakeman lost his head to a passing train and he now walks up and down the tracks holding a lantern trying to find his head. A stamp has even been issued by Canada Post commemorating the ghost light. As for how it happens, that may have been solved by two 12th grade students from La Range. They were able to duplicate the phenomenon which they stated was being caused by the diffraction of distant vehicle lights. Of course, the story of the lights predates the invention of the car, so who knows what the real origin is? <coughs> Fort de la Corne. Located at the east of Prince Albert, you will find Fort de la Corne, a National Historic Site of Canada. Originally called Fort St. Louis and then Fort de Prairie, it was built by Louis de la Cône in 1753 as a fur trade post on the western end of a chain of posts and were designed to divert furs away from the English and their forts on Hudson Bay. The fort would last until 1759. In 1775, the Peddlers, a group of independent fur traders, built a fort in the area but soon moved upstream in 1776. In 1795, either the Peddlers or the Northwest Company built Fort St. Louis on the right bank of the river nearby to the original fort. One year later, the Hudson Bay Company built a fort near Carleton House. In 1846, after the Northwest Company and the Hudson Bay Company had merged in 1821, A new Fort St. Louis was built just a few kilometers away from the original fort. In 1926, the area became a National Historic Site of Canada. (coughs) Grey Owl On September 18, 1888, Grey Owl, also known as Archibald Stansfield Bellany, was born in Sussex, England. Coming to Canada in 1906 on the SS Canada, He began to study agriculture and then worked as a wilderness guide, fur trader, and forest ranger. It was around this time he began to fabricate his indigenous identity. He would serve in the First World War, claiming he was born in Montreal, and his comrades believed him to be indigenous. He would return to Canada in 1917 after being shot in the foot, the second time he'd been wounded in the war, and he would spend a year in the hospital as doctors tried to heal his foot. Beginning in 1925, he would rise in prominence as an author and lecturer on environmental issues. Around this time, he began living with Gertrude Bernard, a Mohawk Iroquois woman who encouraged him to stop trapping and publish his writings about the wilderness. Grey Owl began to feel that trapping was barbaric and started to campaign against it and for conservation. He would publish articles on animal lore under his name, Grey Owl, and in 1928, the National Park Service made a film about him. The film featured him with two beavers he had adopted after their mother was killed. Between 1930 and 1935, Grey Owl wrote 25 articles for the Canadian Forest and Outdoors magazine, and he would publish his first book in 1931 called The Men of the Last Frontier, which traced the story of the beaver and presented his concerns about the future of Canada's forest. With the success of his books and his collaboration with the National Park Service, he would begin to do speaking tours in Canada and England. Between 1931 and 1937, he would write five books on conservation in the wilderness. Sadly, the pressure of the tours and his growing alcoholism began to weaken him, and in 1938 he would die in Prince Albert from pneumonia. After his death, it became known that Grey Owl was actually a man born by the name of Archibald. The North Bay Nugget knew of the truth behind his identity for three years, but they waited until he died to publish the story. The cabin he built in the 1930s still stands in Prince Albert National Park, and several plaques honour Grey Owl in England and Canada as well. And the cabin he lived in at the Riding Mountain National Park for six months in 1931 has been designated as a Federal Heritage Building. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at Prince Albert, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig you can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to CanadaEHX.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden Doug Campbell Reg W Deborah Carlson Francis Helbling Random McCallum Diane Wade, Lori Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke Guess, JP Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com/CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.